Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello everybody, how are you? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I am here in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate that. Today on the program, my guest is Austin Kleon, New York Times bestselling author of a trilogy of illustrated books about creativity in the digital age. The way to be new in a lot of ways is to go back farther than other people are going. I've always felt like, especially in publishing, like that's a really powerful thing. The past is a place that you find the future. All right, that's Austin Kleon, New York Times bestselling author of a trio of books on creativity in the digital age, a trilogy. Those books are entitled, respectively, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and keep going. Austin Kleon is also the author of Newspaper Blackout, a collection of poetry made by redacting the newspaper with a permanent marker. Steal Like an Artist is now available from Workman Publishing in a beautiful 10th anniversary edition. I have my copy sitting right here. It's a lovely book and a very helpful one for creative people of any stripe. This is Austin Kleon's second time on the Other People podcast. We talked all the way back in 2014, seems like a century ago, in episode 304. And I'm very happy to have him back on the show to celebrate 10 years of Steel Like an Artist and to share with me some of the insights that he has gained through the years in his study of creativity and creative people a study that now spans three books that have sold over a million copies worldwide. My hope with this episode is that it will serve as a nice shot in the arm 
for those of you listening who are working on your own creative projects, whether it's a book or a script of some kind or a visual art piece, whatever it happens to be. Austin Kleon's books are a wonderful trove of distilled wisdom. And I really love these books. They've been a help to me. You can read each of them in a single sitting. And I just find it to be a nice way to reorient myself if I'm getting bogged down creatively or if I'm feeling sluggish in some way. It's just a reminder, a refresher. And I think it's a pretty common experience for people to read these books and then stop themselves in the middle of it so that they can get to work creatively. So what I'm trying to say is that these books are inspiring, they are generative, they get you moving, they get you unstuck, and they get you thinking straight about what it actually means to be a working creative person in this world. So we are now moving into summer. I feel like a lot of us are working on things. Maybe there's a bit more downtime than usual. Some of us are taking trips and so on, or taking sabbaticals, or not working on anything at all. Uh, with whatever the case, I thought it would be nice to talk with Austin Cleon, and I was correct. It was great to talk with him, and that conversation is coming up in just a moment. Today's episode is made possible by Texas Tech University Press. Texas Tech University Press is proud to announce a new publishing collaboration with the Diasporic Vietnamese Artists Network, or DVAN. Divan promotes nonfiction, fiction, and poetry to empower Vietnamese artists. The first publication from Texas Tech University Press and Divan is the novel Constellations of Eve by Abigail Wynne Rosewood. In this philosophical fable of art and fate, Abigail Wynne Rosewood paints a world that floats above our own and contours the infinitesimal moments that shape who we love over whom we obsess, and how we decide what to live for. That is Constellations of Eve, the new novel by Abigail Wynne Rosewood. It is available now from Texas Tech University Press and DVAN. For more information, visit ttupress.org. All right, so today's guest once again is Austin Cleon author of a beloved trilogy of books on creativity in the digital age. Again, these books are called, respectively, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going. Steal Like an Artist is now celebrating its 10th year in print, and I am just delighted to have Austin Cleon back on the program to talk about all matters creative. So here he is, folks. This is Austin Cleon. I had a bike when I was a kid, but I lived in the middle of a cornfield on an old country road, and people would drive like, you know, 70 miles an hour down this road. So there was actually nowhere for me to ride. I remember visiting my friends that lived in like a housing development that was like more low cost housing. It was right around the, the RCA plant. I remember being so jealous of these kids because they lived in like a, a housing development where they could ride their bikes around and like go see each other and hang out. And I had to wait for my parents to like drive me to someone's house. You know, it was actually a really isolated kind of existence. You know, if you grew up 
people forget about rural America that like people who live in rural areas in America, they don't necessarily live on like a lot of property with like woods and stuff to explore. You know, there's a lot of people in rural America that live on a little plot, you know, and it's just like, it's just like a piece of land and they're pretty far stretched out. So I actually hated, I hated growing up that way. So for me, a bike was kind of like, it always seemed like a like a like a instrument of freedom, but I never really had a situation in which I I got to ride one. And finally, I have a fr- few friends who ride in Austin, and I just decided in February to take my friend Christy, who rides a lot, and there's a bike shop just down the street from my house, and we just went to the bike shop, and I found like just a plain old seven speed hybrid that just i liked it bought it and i just started riding and the the cool thing that happened is um my friend sam anderson wrote a piece in the new york times recently about uh he lost a lot of weight and one of the things that happened after the piece was really about how he didn't feel any differently about himself after he lost all this weight and the piece was sort of like he still felt like he was a head with a body that he, that the head drags around. <laughs> you know, he was kind of like, I still feel like I've got this big head and then just this meat sack attached to it. <laughs> and it was really interesting to me because I thought that's what biking has done for me is given me that kind of whole body. I feel very much more in my body. I'm not a super athletic person. I'm not, uh, I'm not a sporty guy. But the biking has really given me this kind of whole body experience and made me feel very comfortable in my body. And I think that has real power because I think most of the creative people I study, it's a full body experience. Like it it really, the body tells the mind as much as the mind tells the body. I think that Cartesian kind of duality of mind-body is, is, is a... I think it's a mirage. I, I mean, I think it's a it's it's a faulty perception. You know, I think that we split the head and the body, and 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 it's not good for us on the whole. So that's the other thing, bikes. I mean, you know, my wife laughs because if someone asked me about, you know, biking, she's like, uh, she you know, she's just like <laughs> she'll make the cut sign. <laughs> you know, she's like, he's not going to shut up. But I, I mean, you know, and it, it's it is funny to feel like a demographic because I mean, I, uh, cycling is having a boom right now. I'm reading Jody Rosen's book about cycling, and he makes a point that cycling is just kind of this thing that has these boom and bust periods, and we're just in a boom period. I just love technology that like does one thing really well. And it just, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I still love books so much is that a book has done what it's done. It it does what it's done for hundreds of years and it still, it still works the way it's supposed to. You open it and, and you go, you know, it's kind of like that with the bike. I mean, this is a long, (laughs) this has turned into a long, thing on cycling but i it's literally changed my life and i think if anyone and i understand your pain honestly because i mean you've almost not been riding as long as i've been riding now and i know an injury has come i think that's the other hard thing as a rider is like you know you're gonna get hurt at some point like you're gonna at least fall over and scrape or you know hopefully you don't fly off and hit your head or something but like 
you're you're going to have an injury at some point and so there is an element of danger to it that that frightens me a little bit but for me it's just changed my life i mean i just i i really if anyone who's listening is thinking about getting a bike do it yeah I think we need more Just bikes on the road so that people can see people biking and they go, oh, maybe I could do that. That's my whole yeah. theory of the case, you know, is and to get be... bags, get a rack, like a big thing that changed my life. Clive Thompson's been writing about this. My friend Clive, he's a, he's a writer in New York and has written some really great books and great writer. And Clive told me, get some panniers, you know, get some saddlebags. Cause once you get bags on your bike, then like you can do all this stuff on your bike that like it just opens up all these possibilities. So I'll go to the library and get books and I'll go to the grocery store, you know, like all this stuff that you can do on a bike. And all it takes is like a $50 rack on the back, rear rack, and then, you know, maybe a $50, you know, saddlebag and you're good to go. <laughs> you're good to go. I mean, you yeah, can always you... just get a basket too. But um, once you think about your, you know, once you have something to haul stuff with on your bike, then it gets really interesting. I'm curious too. It seems like an extension of pandemic living because it is this solitary outdoor COVID safe activity. Yeah. Uh, it seems like a natural, like, like a logical thing to take up considering what we've just lived through. And I'm wondering, as like a thought leader in the creative space, if that's a way to put it, or a teacher in the creative space who has a following, what the pandemic has changed about the kinds of questions you might be getting, or you might see certain trends creatively that have developed in response to the pandemic well, I think the pandemic just turned everything up to eleven, so I have this trilogy of books that that are you know that people read to help them get places they want to go and i thought for sure when the pandemic happened i said oh keep going that'll be the book because that's the third in the trilogy that's the book about how to like deal with the groundhog day in and day out the repetitiveness of creative work and how you just have to show up every day and it's slow and 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 sometimes painful and and just that that whole you know, having a, a kind of cultivating a kind of um, solid, <laughs> you know, discipline to to what you need to get through a creative career, a resilience. You know, I thought that book would take off in the pandemic. It actually hasn't been that book at all um, because I think people are living that already. Um, the book that has been the surprise hit of the pandemic is Show Your Work. It actually outsold Steal Like an Artist last royalty season, which is crazy. And I think the reason is that is a book about how do you build something new for yourself in front of a computer screen? <laughs> you know, like that that whole book, the, that book was about you're stuck in your studio, you're working all the time. How can you start to build a following without even leaving your studio or even putting in that much crazy? So Show Your Work has actually been the book that I think people are finding the most valuable for a couple of reasons. One, it's about what I just said, building an audience from the comfort of your studio. The other thing is, is I think the great resignation of people trying to people taking this opportunity to reinvent themselves, you know, to find a new career or, or whatever it is. I think that book speaks to that too. So I think it's, for me, it's been like 
oh, I it's it's almost like people's problems haven't changed as much as what I have for them is kind of like different, I guess, or, or like there's there's some material that that I think works better for people. Hmm. Well, it makes sense to me that show your work would be the one that you know now that I think about it that people would glom onto uh, in the pandemic because everybody's cloistered. Like you said, a lot of people are reinventing themselves. People's relationship to work and workspace got reoriented. And uh, that is definitely a book that I found very useful thinking about building a following from the screen. <laughs> that Yeah, and that was a book that, like, when it came out was very, like, it was it really pushes you like I there's even Amazon review. I mean, I love Amazon reviews, other, other, I mean, I hate them too, of course, as a writer, but one of the interesting things about Amazon reviews, I think as a, and this is such a great lesson for all creative people is that they always sort of describe the same book. And what I mean by that is like, I'll get a five, I'll get a one star review. Somebody say, this isn't even a book. Like for Steel Like an Arts, to say this isn't even a book. I got on a plane and I had it read in 30 minutes. You know, one star. Like <laughs> this should have just been a blog post or whatever. Then a, a five-star review will be like, this is amazing. I picked this up and read it in one plane flight. And I got off the plane and started working. You, you know, it's just like they, they both describe the same book. It's short. <laughs> it's a short book. But like they they, they were looking for different things. One of the things I'm always trying to tell people is like reading is a dance between the reader and the book. Like, I mean, the writer puts all this energy and all this crystallizes this thought at this certain moment in time and prints it in this package. But then it it's really the reader's energy that unlocks the embedded energy in the book. So the br reader brings their energies to the book and then the writer's energy that's like packed in the book, it it's unlocked by the reader. And it's just so contextual. It, like a reader's response to the book is just all about what the reader's looking for. It's not really about the book that much. You, you know, it's about, it's so much more about the reader. The reader is the real active participant at that point. And so I just think it's really instructive from the reader's perspective and from the writer's perspective. Hey, you bring all of what you got to this thing and you put it in there, but then you have to know that it's going to be the readers that give it a life or, or they don't. And that's the big risk of that's the big risk of writing is that you can write the book you want to read, which I think is the best way to go, but it just whether it finds readers or not, it's just not up to you. No, no, no. Yeah. And, you know, but your books have. And I should say, as a, a fan of the work, that the the brevity or the concision of it, I really appreciate because you've done all this thought work for the reader. You've crystallized it, as you said. And what I find in reading these books as a kind of refresher, that's the relationship that I have to them now because I've read them more than once, is that it gets me wanting to work creatively. And that's a really great outcome for any work of art, any book or piece of art. I think that might be the highest outcome is when you make art that makes people also want to create something. You're absolutely right. That is the greatest compliment to me. I'm a fan of the writer Lewis Hyde, and, and he, all, he writes in The Gift that 
your individual gifts are unlocked by the gifts of the people you look up to, you know? And so I always feel like that is what these books are supposed to do. You're supposed to walk away and start working. The question will be, will I keep writing books like that? You know, because I have other kinds of books I want to write. And so it's the, it's that question of, can you still, you know, Vonnegut has this great line where he's like, you know, I think the purpose of art is to make people appreciate being alive. And then people say, well, what artist ever did that? And he says, well, the Beatles did, you, you know, <laughs> so it's like, but I, but I do love that. I mean, I, I do think that great art should be affirmative in the sense of it should make you appreciate being alive. I, I do I do believe that. And and in a sense as a creator, when you're most alive is when you're working. So it's it's you know, that's that's the great compliment. And that and that is what the books are supposed to do. And they're modeled off of books that have done that for me, you know, like every time I read a Linda Berry book, the, the things that Linda Berry did for me, that's what I'm trying to do for my readers. You well, know, so. yeah, the message, I mean, one of the core messages of Steal Like an Artist that is kind of elemental to creativity, but is something that I can always stand to hear again, is this notion that nothing is original. Yeah. And the pressure that we can sometimes put on ourselves as artists to kind of come up with something brand new or to strike out and say something, you know, that the earth has never heard before. That could be, a, that's a little bit of hubris, is it not? I think it is, but I also think it's the way that we talk about art and the way that we understand art. You know, people say, why have to we use that word steal? Like, why couldn't you have said be influenced like an artist or something? And I always tell them, well, it's because I'm not very original. Like, I use the word steal because all these people that I looked up to, they use that language. They're like, oh, yeah, I stole that from so-and-so or whatever. And there were all these great artists who I used that terminology. And so that's what I used. I mean, now I look back and it's like, you know, the way I think of it is that, you, you know, you, when people talk about how original an artist is, it's almost as if they're talking about them as an individual. And my real feeling about art is that art's made by ordinary people that do extraordinary things. And I've never really bought too much into the genius. I, I do think there are geniuses. Like, I think, like, Prince was a genius. I think Beethoven. But genius is nothing without that rich context in which someone can unlock their energies. Like, you know, there's a right place, right time for all the greats. And so as a, as a ordinary person, a non-genius, there's so much great work made by non-geniuses, you know? And the way they do it, the big light bulb moment for me was when I realized the way to be original is not to like reach down in my soul and pluck the thing that like only I have. It's to diversify the input to 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 take in everything i can as a consumer to gobble up all sorts of different broad interesting things and that through that digestion that a new interesting mix will emerge that this idea that we're not so much original as we're a mashup of what's you know come before us that you have a DNA that is completely, you know, it's original in a sense, but it's made up of all these ancestors, you know. Well, it's the same thing for your intellectual DNA, except you could pick your intellectual DNA. So it's like about 
you know, sort of building your own genealogy in a sense. You say, I, I just, you say, you say, climb your own family tree in, exactly. in the book. And that's a really instru- like, it's a great like, uh, way of visualizing it. Yeah, because you don't get to pick your family, but you can pick your 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 new family. You can pick your your artistic family. You can build your own lineage. You can place yourself. And and the great thing is, is that you don't have to be accepted by those people, particularly if they're dead. <laughs> you know, you can you can apprentice yourself to anyone who's come before because they left all their plans in the work. You know, so. So to me, this was just incredibly liberating because I think a lot of like, I think a lot of the dominant narrative is, well, how are you special? You have to unlock what makes you special as if it's like this solid thing. And really, for me, it's like, it's about assembling yourself in a sense. It's, it's about becoming that thing. And the way you do that is you project your interest out into the world. Like the way you become interesting is that you project your interest out into the world. And I think that is really the, the, the key to Steal Like an Artist. And that's the reason I still like the metaphor, because it puts you in the position of like a jewel thief, right? Like you're always casing the world, looking for things to steal. Because when you get particularly young people to think that way, they stop being passive. They stop being like, oh, the books that are assigned to me in class or, you know, whatever comes my way. They start actively seeking out their own influences that they can use in in their work. And so, you you know, part of the problem with influence is, is is our grammar, the English language. When you say, oh, I'm very influenced by Picasso, it makes it sound like Picasso is doing something to you when actually you're doing something to Picasso. You know, Basquiat said, I'm not influenced. Uh, you have to understand that influence is just someone else's idea running through my mind. You know, that I'm the one doing, I'm the, one doing the influence. Yeah, you, influence you know? is something you take. It's something you take. That's a good way to think about it. And, and you don't need anyone's permission. That's what's so great. You know, you, you, once people put their work in, into the world, they can't really keep it from you. And so that's part of the, there's just all this stuff available to you, you know. And that the way, the other way to think about it is uh, Billy Collins one time put it, because people are always talking about find your voice, you know, you have to find your voice. And Billy Collins said, oh, forget that. You have to find about a dozen voices. <laughs> you, you basically, you try to copy about a dozen other poets, and eventually there's like a Frankenstein monster of yourself, you know. Uh, you take a little bit from so-and-so, you take a little bit from so-and-so, and pretty much you have, you know, you've got this Frankenstein monster, and then I always think of it as the more you work, the more you turn into like more of an a android without any seams showing. You know, you like you go from like a Frankenstein monster where everything you can see where all the pieces come from, to eventually, if you keep working, it it, it blends all together and it like becomes this new body. You know, we talk about like a body of work. You know, so it becomes this like new thing. It's liberating to think of it that way. I, I feel like it's so. It makes so much sense, and I think if you look to your artistic heroes, I think of musicians in particular, who stay vital into their old age. You will, yeah. will, you will never hear one of those people, whether it's a Prince or a Bob Dylan or a David Byrne or a whoever it is, you'll never hear them say, I don't listen 
to much music anymore. They're they're co- like David Bowie. Like remember him in his in his later years, constant consumers. And even if they, you know, they might not listen to new music, but they're going back. You know, that's the other thing that I think. As I get older, the more I want people to understand about Steel Like an Artist is the way to be new in a lot of ways is to go back farther than other people are going. You know, like we're having a moment right now where like the 80s and the 90s are really huge. Everyone's like taking from that. But it's like you wonder at what point in music, like, will people go back, back, you know, and start. I've always felt like, especially in publishing, like that's a really powerful thing. The past is a place that you find the future is something that's really, really inspiring to me as a, as a, as a maker and as an artist. But I think the other thing I'm coming around to, see, this is an ever-evolving thing for me. The other thing I'm coming around to is that I personally think that what you digest, what your diet is, in some ways it's the only thing you can actually control in the creative process. Because I actually don't think that you can control a lot of the creative process. I think you can kind of set up a situation in which you can be creative, but you can't really put a gun to your head and say, be creative now. You know, there's so many like weird unconscious forces working on us when we're working. All you can really do is show up and and start, you know, working, seeing what comes. But so much of that is going to be beyond your control as far as what actually comes to you. But the the digesting, the seeking of other inspiration, that is something very active that you can do. You know, that's something that you can kind of control. You can control what comes in and out. You know, and I think that's in some ways, I don't think I've ever said this out loud before, but it does seem to me like the thing that you can actually control in the process because honestly a lot of the creative process is 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 um surrender rather than control yeah you're 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 showing up but then you're surrendering to what happens the way a kid would surrender to play um or improv or something like that hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. So for people listening, I would say the, the majority of whom are book nerds, writers, you know, with my show. Yeah. We have this idea of building one's own family tree of like this idea of input equaling output. You've got to kind of be interested to be interesting, collect your influences, take them. And then from, you know, from that combination, make something new. Uh, As a practical matter for people who are thinking like, okay, how do I get started? Uh, There's an idea in Steal Like an Artist that I love, which has to do with just building a swipe file. Or I think it's also called a morgue file. Yeah, uh, in, in journalism, they call it a morgue file, where you take clippings from articles and you kind of like keep them in a file, and you go back there for inspiration. I I like to call it a swipe file, and the swipe file is just a place that you know it can be a notebook, it can be digital, it can be your Evernote, whatever it is. It's the place where you put the things that you love that you can then go back to for for inspiration. A modification of that is Steven Johnson calls it a spark file. Like he just has a Word document where he just adds ideas all the time. An ancient form of it is called a commonplace book. In ancient times when books weren't, you know, there were no computers and books you might have to borrow or, you know, uh, people kept what's called a commonplace book. And it was just a notebook where you copied out long passages from books that you really liked. Uh, Everyone kept one of these. For me, the most powerful thing nowadays, because I have an iPhone and I have a Mac laptop, the Notes app now syncs to the cloud. So I have Notes apps now for projects where I like dumb, off-the-rack technology. I mean, other people, they use Scrivener or Evernote or uh, all this stuff. I like text files and just simple things. Me too. Um, Just simple things that... And as I have a longer career, I keep thinking about archival problems as far as like, am I going to be able to open this file in 10 years or, you know, silly things like that. So I like really simple forms of it. I think the other thing that's really cool about the swipe file and every every creative writing class you'll take or something will will make you start keeping a notebook Having a swipe file means that you are on the lookout because if you have a place to put things, then when you come across and you start using it, you train yourself to be on the lookout for stuff. And then what's really interesting for me, if you if you read me, if you're like if you subscribe to my newsletter, for example, you'll start understanding, oh, well, like Twitter is like his swipe file now. Because what he does is he tweets about things all week, and then he goes back and picks the best things and puts them in this newsletter. It's like multiple levels of swipe file. And, you know, a lot of the ways that my books happen is it's like a tweet becomes a blog post, becomes a book chapter, you know, becomes a book. And so it's kind of this ever-evolving thing. You can do a swipe file in a way – that's why I love blogs. Blogs are like swipe files. They're public. And what's powerful, you know, some people would be worried, oh, well, if I share my stuff, will other people rip it off? Well, it's like 
if you share your influences, sure, other people might use it, but then they might also add on to it and say, oh, well, if you like that, you should look at this. Right. And that's what's so powerful to me about, in particular, my newsletter now, because I'll be like, oh, I'm really into this thing. And then people will be like, oh, well, if you're into that, you need to be into this. And I'm like, what's that thing? You know, and then that's how I grow. And that's what the internet used to be. It wasn't just people telling you you were stupid or <laughs> you know, whatever. It was kind of like more... Like, I loved the early days of blogging where someone would blog something and then you'd block quote it and add your two cents and then someone else would block quote that. You know, there was this real, there was a kind of dialogue going on in a sense. And and people, you know, it was their blog, so they had to be, when it's your space somehow, you you were more like you're more deliberate about what you put on your space. So I always felt like with blogs, people were fairly well behaved because it was like their blog. Whereas like with Twitter, it's just people say anything, right? You know, it's not, they don't own the space. They know they don't own the space and it's just like madness. But I've, I've really, my, my comment section of my Substack or my newsletter now has that kind of walled garden feel of uh, like protected space that blogs used to have for me. Um, where like, I just remember in the comments on blogs, you used to see the same names pop up and then you might even become friends with those people, you know, that that's happening now. I've had blog, uh, comments turned off of my blog for years. Um, and, and now like the comments of the newsletter, because it's only people who pay. <laughs> so right. it's like, right. it's your crew. It's people who really care about your work. It's just a lovely place. I've loved it. My, my new, I call it news Newsletter 2.0, because I did, I, I migrated to Substack last year, not for any reason, they didn't give me any money or anything like that. I just find, I felt like that was the tool that was helping people do what I wanted to do the best. And so far, I've just loved it. I've loved this kind of evolution of the, of the newsletter, particularly because I think as a writer, you're always a little afraid of your audience in some ways, like... I actually haven't heard authors talk about this very often, but I'm always a little bit anxious to really interact with my audience because you just never know. You know, you're like, is my message coming across? You know, like, am I landing right? Am I who these people think I am? You know, that kind of thing. There's just like, when you have a readership, there's all sorts of bizarre, you, you know, feelings and thoughts and things that go through your mind. But my readers are the most lovely people. I mean, and it's true in the comment section and it is true like when I used to, I mean, I haven't been on book tour for years and years now, but like just the the, the signing line at, at book readings just the loveliest people. Well, I think and, it's I think it's partially <laughs> I mean partially it's probably some serendipity, but I think also it's because you're helping people with these books. People are grateful. You know? I, I, I like to think that. I also am not attempting to get like you could you can go for like a certain kind of audience. Like you can go for the tech bro audience if you want to. You know, like you can go for the, uh, you know, there's all these different audiences that people think exist out there. And I just never did it that way. I was always like, I want to write the kind of books I want to read. And I want to be interested in the kind of stuff that I'm genuinely interested in. 
And I have this feeling that if I write about it in a clear, useful, entertaining way, it will find an audience. Might not be a gigantic audience, but it'd be like the right size of audience. You know, it'd be the right people will show up. And so far that has been just a hundred percent true for me. It has been like, you know, the more I just stick to that vision of what are you genuinely interested in, take people along for the ride in a way that's not scary or disorienting, you know, because I, cause I mean, in the newsletter, I mean, I write about all kinds of weird stuff, like whatever I'm interested in, you know, but people trust me because, you know, and they'll come along. And if they don't want to, they just hit unsubscribe and it's like no problem, you know. Right, right. Um, because there is a, I do think the books are, me on my happiest most helpful day you know i mean like i'm always cautioning people i'm like look these books it i did write them and that is me talking to you but it is the nicest kindest most gentle helpful (laughs) version of me if you meet me in real life like you know we'll see how it goes but like but this is this is me at my most gentle and helpful yeah. you know, in the, in the books. So wow. speaking of like good and bad dichotomies, just to extend <laughs> it a little bit, I think uh, it might be useful for listeners who are thinking about this idea of, of stealing, you know, and taking, yeah. taking influence to delineate a little bit between what constitutes like good stealing and what might be like not so good stealing. You know, there is a difference. It, we're not, you're not advocating for like out and out plagiarism, for example, as a, uh, as like a, a way to go. No, I mean, the best thief doesn't get caught. I mean, the best artistic theft, you don't even know where it came from. You, you'd you have to be like Barry, uh, Bill Hader's show. Um, I'll watch that show, and I'll think, God, this is great. Man, what is, this is what a wonderful episode. And then I'll read one of those recaps with him. He'll be like, oh, yeah, we stole this shot from Thief and, like, this other Michael Mann movie, and then, like... He's just a he's just an encyclopedia of film. Oh yeah, we were going for like I I wanted this to feel like a western. There are all these influences that once you see them, you know they're there. But they they put their own stink on it, and there's like it's totally transformed. It's it's transformed by the writers. It's transformed by the actors and new settings and everything. So like in a lot of ways, the the you know the lineage is there but like you don't know it's not like a a a straight ripoff you know or or a copy i do believe we start learning by copying but if you have kids it's really interesting because my kids will copy they copy drawings just like i always did they'll copy cartoon characters and you know draw all these different characters that they've gotten from video games and other books and stuff but like inevitably they start putting themselves into the story and then they start doing parodies of that work so like they start making their own versions and like that's just how humans operate like copying is how we make sense of our world we copy what's around us and then we kind of come into our own thing well you you, you you talked about uh you talk about in the book um uh, I think it was, I think this is in the book, but or maybe it was in an interview that I read. I can't remember, but you were describing being a 10-year-old going to see Jurassic Park <laughs> yeah, and coming, yeah. Out, coming out of the movie and basically writing uh, a sequel. 
Yeah, so I sort of had a huge crush on the girl in that movie, which is hilarious to me. I forget what her the actress's name is, but I thought, oh, well, you know, she should go back to the island. That should be Jurassic Park too. She like returns to the island, and she should call. She should the the murdered game warden has a son that goes with her, and you know, I invented this whole story in my head of what should happen next, and then of course Jurassic Park. Two came, and I even like I remember typing it or typing the beginning, and then of course a few years later, Jurassic Park Two comes out, and I'm just like, well, what is this? This is terrible because the sequel in your head is always better right. than the sequel, the you know, the sequel that actually happens. But the thing that's interesting to me is like all fiction is fan fiction right. in a sense, and yes. that we write the kind of story that we like, and and a lot of our, you know, a lot of the work that that we do is is it's recombining everything we've read you know into into something that we haven't seen before um but i have so i am always when people are like particularly people starting out it's like well what you know think about your heroes what did they not make that you would have liked them to make because that's a very easy right from the get-go like you're a band this guy loves Willie Nelson. This guy loves Radiohead. This guy loves uh, Donna Summer. What do we make? Well, what would those people sound like in a room together? <laughs> you know, let's see what, you know, so it's that kind of combinatorial. That's a very easy starting point, a starting point. And then you get to somewhere weird. You know, usually that happens without intention. It's just people with different influences get together and they start playing and, and I think play is like a really, really important word that people don't focus on enough. Musicians play together. That's how every creative person should think about what they do. How do you play? You know, because playing is really, playing is the work of the child, and I think it's the work of the artist. The great artists are able to retain that sense of playfulness, and they're able to start playing. Well, and you talk to, I mean, what you're talking about in this example of the, the musicians with these various uh, heroes, you know, this contradicts this idea of uh, paying attention to what you like, contradicts the common dictum in the writing universe that you're supposed to write what you know. Yeah. You say write what you like. Yeah. Well, because I, because again, I just always felt like I would be in a creative writing class and I'd be like, I don't know anything. I'm 19. Like, I don't know anything. What, what would I write about? You know, it's like, and so I had a friend, I think it might have been my friend Maureen McHugh or a lot of the writers I look up to have that advice. It's like, write what you know, write what you don't know. Like, what do you not know? I mean, where do fantasy writers get, you know? They're inspired, you know, look for, yeah, write the kind of stuff you like. That, that, that was really the thing for me that, that really set me off was I just found myself, particularly as a young writer, just like, oh, well, they tell you in school to write short stories and then get them in literary magazines. And like, so that's what I'll do. So I did that for a few years until I realized, wait a minute, I don't really even like short stories or literary magazines. <laughs> you know, and I started doing comics, you know, so it's like there's just so much like asking of yourself, what do you really want to do? And I know that sounds so simple, but it's like I think so many people get talked into doing 
work that they want don't want to do. And um, for me, it was like the sooner I got really real about the kind of work I wanted to do and what I felt like I was good at and what was hitting, just the better things went for me. So, I mean, like if you had taken me when I was 19 and like described what I do now, there's no template for that. Like there's no, you know, and that's why I think it's really important for people when they're starting out to think about their verbs instead of their nouns. This is kind of one of the things I am really, really adamant about is like you might, if you say you want to be a novelist, that's fine, but you'll have an idea of what a novelist does and you'll try to do that. Whereas if you just say, I want to write stories that is more open <laughs> like it's more like well you might end up a screenwriter you might end up a copywriter for an insurance company or you might whatever it is if you just like to write and put stories together and you like words and stuff that keeps things open in a way that a certain particular noun doesn't you know and so you stay open to this you know, to things. You might end up a podcaster. You might end up a filmmaker. You might, you know, you might do a teacher. Um, if you're in my case, you end up a self-help writer, which I never anticipated. Right. Um, and if I had, you know, I, I didn't, you know, we're, we're writers. Words have meaning. And they, if you get the wrong words, it, it encourages the wrong kind of action. You know, so you just have to be really careful. <laughs> and I want to talk too about like, you know, you keep mentioning uh, being, you know, your youth, like being 19, having people ask you to write what you know when you don't really know all that much. Yeah. Um, or being, like you say, like a lot of people get convinced to become a certain kind of artist, either by the culture or by some like community that they're in academically or otherwise. And there's a great part of Steal Like an Artist where you're talking about obscurity which, you know, most of us, even those of us who are published, <laughs> might yeah. feel like we're living in. Um, but you make a great case for um, embracing obscurity and making productive use of it. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, because I think the majority of us in the writing world are living in some version of it. Well, you could just do whatever you want. I mean, people worry so much about you know people being angry at them or doing the wrong thing or whatever you know um but obscurity can be this great gift you know you can experiment you can it's 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 kind of freedom now unlimited freedom can be very paralyzing too i mean freedom is not necessarily you know it's not necessarily the best thing ever for for art like there's a tension between freedom and constraint out of which great art arises and um obscurity kind of it, it it can be a real gift if if you use it correctly and it requires a real leap of imagination because you have to kind of think about well, what happens when people start paying attention <laughs> which is a problem you know you're lucky to have but it's still a problem and you just don't have those problems when you're obscure. I mean, you really can try anything and you can experiment. And um, because what happens is once you alight on something that people like, 
you're going to feel that pressure to only do that thing. Well, <laughs> let, let me, only, yeah, let me turn know. this around on you because you've done these, uh, I think you refer to them as square books. You know, that's the yeah. shape of them. Mm-hmm. And you've written in the self-help genre, uh, I guess you would call it. You know, you're helping people unlock their creativity. You're distilling a lot of wisdom around this particular human act, I guess you would put it. And I feel like maybe self-help, I, like I wrote a book of autofiction and I can't help but notice the way that I think you do when you put out a certain kind of book, all of a sudden people be bashing autofiction. I think sometimes <laughs> yeah. the same thing can happen yeah. to like self-help. Same thing can happen to genre fiction. Oh, it's not as high art as literary yeah. fiction or whatever. And do you feel like, how have you handled leaving obscurity, building a name for yourself, doing yeah. this particular kind of book, building this trilogy and then managing maybe the expectations of the community of readers that you've built. Well, it was really easy for Steel Like an Artist because I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know that there was really a creativity self-help shelf, that that was a genre. I mean, obviously my publisher did and my editor did and even my agent, you know. But I just wasn't clued into that. I just – I was I thought I was trying to write about like how you do a, a – how you be an artist i was just that was what it was that 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 was the question that steel like an artist for me that's like this is my best approximation of how this happens and then once steel like an artist came out and i realized there's a genre of self-help i got very interested in self-help and i wanted to know well what's this about and what's the history of this and what are these books doing and and then i asked myself how do i subvert this how now that I'm in this genre, the other the other thing is the illustrated gift book, which is something in publishing that I didn't realize was a thing. But that's the books you see by the cash register, like the you know that have inspirational quotes or you know whatever it is. So I just started thinking like, well, wait a minute, Th- this like self help, inspirational gift book, like you could be. I mean, Steel Like an Artist is kind of a weird book. And I thought, you could be even weirder in this. So Show Your Work was kind of my attempt to get weirder with it. To kind of like, okay, well, how can I use this form to really write about some of the things I really want to write about and to present this whole kind of new way of that I was witnessing other people working in. So like the question, once you find yourself in a genre, you can either leave the genre or you can say, how do I mess with this? And that was what was interesting for me. And then, so, like, Show Your Work was, like, I, I, I even, like, was, like, how can I make this feel more textural? Like, I wanted the illustrations to be a little less, which is really dumb in hindsight, but it's, like, I wanted them to be a little less, like, knock you over the head and more, like, ambient, you know, just little things like that that other people might not pick up on, but were things I was giving myself as a, as a challenge. And then Keep Going... I was very much like, how do, okay, we've got this form. This is going to be the third, hopefully the last in this particular trilogy. How do we Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade this, right? Because you got Raiders, and everyone loves that one. Everyone's always going to love that one. And then you've got Temple of Doom, which is like real messy and weird. And, you know, some people like it, but, uh, you know, whatever. How do we Last Crusade this, you know? And so that was keep going for me. It was like, how do we perfect this get this as tight as we can get it and like really make this particular thing sail but these are all things that go on in the background but i think it's really important as a creator to have some kind of 
mission in the back of your head of what you're trying to attempt with this particular book. Like what you're trying to attempt artistically doesn't have to be in line with what you're trying to do for the reader, but it, it helps to have that kind of laid out for yourself. I didn't have it with Steel Like an Artist because Steel Like an Artist was kind of almost like a... It, it happened so fast. I mean, one of, the, one of the secrets of that book is I only had a couple of months to write it and illustrate it, so I just didn't have time to worry about whether it was good. It was just like a punk rock album or something. It was just like recorded fast and whatever's there is there. Which is, I think that energy stays in, in the book now. But Show Your Work was like, I think I had a secret sentence for that one. I have secret sentences for books that I keep to myself until the book is published. So, like, I want to say for Show Your Work, it was, what if Brian Eno wrote a content marketing book? <laughs> Which is, content marketing is so, like, that's such a gross term, but I was like, what would that look like? And then that's, like, what Show Your Work is. I don't know what if we keep going it was just women and children first which sounds weird but like it starts with this titanic it it starts with this poem called overheard on the titanic it says i mean yes we're sinking but the music is great it's <laughs> exceptional yeah. so i was like i was thinking about the titanic because keep going was written in the in the first trump term hopefully the last but we'll see and, and i was just like what do you do on a sinking ship like what do you do when you feel like you're on a sinking ship how do you keep working and the inspiration for that book was this particular group of women i was reading at the time and my kids playing with my kids so it was women and children first so that sentence kind of brought me along so i'm formulating secret sentences for the new books i want to write which um, which are what like, is to there do. going to be a quartet of creative books are you done with this you think this trilogy is sort of like a, a full cycle i think this trilogy is over i think it's I think they speak to each other in ways that I just don't think I could do another one. It would just, I mean, maybe we'll, I mean, maybe there's another one. I see a new series of books that have like a different trim size and they'll feel like an Austin Cleon book, but they will be a little bit different. I think for me, I'm a structure junkie. So I'm always looking for new structures to play with. Like the other books are structured exactly like each other. I mean, they, it's a list of 10. They have, they're identical. And so in some ways you could switch chapters around from those books and it'd be like one, they're like one big book actually. And so the next book needs to be, you know, it needs to have the easiest way to get to something new for me with this next book is a different structure. And so I've been playing with, with every book, Every book I have in mind, I have three books that I want to write next. Do you know what they are? Like, I mean, do you have like it, a real clear sense? Yeah, yeah. But I haven't, even my agent doesn't really know them. But my wife knows them and a few friends, but I don't tell anyone else. But they all are, are they have very particular structures. Um, you know, they, they, they're organized in different ways than the other books. And that alone, I think, puts them in a different, I think that's enough for me to go to new places, but we'll see. I mean, will they be instructive books? Is it like the same mode? Are you teaching in these books or is it like fiction or is there like any kind of hint you can give? Well, they're definitely not fiction because I have no mind for fiction. I, 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 the only book that ever, there's one person that, that thought 
I guess the more I learn about fiction, the more I'm like, oh, I see how you could do this. If I was going to do a fiction, it'd have to be like historical fiction, I think. I watched a, a lecture from Lauren by Lauren Groff. She wrote this book called Matrix. Sure, yeah. And um, that lecture, there was something about that lecture that unlocked fiction for me because it's like, oh, you don't have to necessarily invent characters. You can just get characters. You can get characters in a sense. Like you can find characters out in the world and then you put them in like this very particular place and world and see what they do. Like you don't have to invent things as much as you have to like, you can kind of set the stage and then how would this play out? You know, like you get things and so, you know, but I don't really think in terms of character or plot. I think in terms of idea and image. So I'm more of like a, I come at things more like a poet you know, I could see things in images, and 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 then I'm I'm a very I'm a very like my right and left hemispheres are very like they 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 fight a lot, and so I'm someone who knows how important the right hemisphere is, and like that sense of wholeness and allowing yourself to be wild and stuff. But my left brain is like I want a tight structure like i want this chop uh, like keep this short and brief and like you know like lego bricks you know and so i'm always like torn between the two as i think a lot of us are actually another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and I want to ask you, this will be like, I think a great way for us to end is to ask you about sharing, mm. which you do such a, a admirable job of. Like you're really good online. You're one of the best, I think, that I've come across in terms of like building a good blog, maintaining that newsletter. Uh, you have a great gift with like visual art and kind of cartooning. There's something about your handwriting that's sort of like so singular. It's like I know I know that handwriting anywhere. Yeah, you've done it. You've just done a great job. Like you have this digital legacy that becomes. It's like an idea factory. You also get feedback from readers that I think can lead you to your books because when something takes off and people really get excited about it, that's as good of an indicator as you can hope for. Yeah. Uh, but I think the the question that I would pose to you, or the thing that I want to hear you talk about for the benefit of my listeners has to do with some strange resistance we have to sharing our ideas or to making transparent our creative processes. And I think you've argued convincingly and show your work in particular that this is maybe the wrong instinct. I, I know so many writers who it's like, yeah, I'm going to squirrel away. I'm not going to show anybody and then I'm going to yeah. put it out there. I've been this way. But when you bring people in to your process 
and you make it transparent, uh, people love that. They love it when you give the secrets away. Oh, they love it and they want it. I mean, it's powerful. The question becomes when you get to the point that you have enough, do you keep doing it? You know, because like I'll give you a very concrete example. I make these collages that don't look like anything I've done before. They're like other people's collages. It's hard to tell whether a collage is good or bad. But mine are like, these collages don't look like many I've seen. They're really special to me. The process is, if I showed everyone how they were done, every, a bunch of people would make them. And when I make one of these collages... It's still exciting and fresh, and it's still not ruined for me. I know that if I make an explanation video for my audience, showing people exactly how I make these things, it's just tape and magazines. No one believes me. I'm like, it's magazines and tape, transparent tape. You figure it out how these are done. I know if I show everyone how to do these, it'll be ruined for me because everyone will make them. And they'll start using the hashtag, and I'll just be like, I won't be interested anymore. So I have every week, <laughs> every time I post one of these collages, people ask me if I'll show them how to do it, and I just won't do it. And I always ask my wife, am I doing the right thing? She's like, yes, you're doing the right thing because you're going to hate them the minute you show people how they're done because you're not finished with them yet. Now, is that a par is that paradoxical? Is that... The opposite of what I preach in Show Your Work. Kind of, except in Show Your Work, I make the case that you need to share what you can lose. Like what you can, you know, like you need to keep what's vulnerable and that, that will not survive being exposed to the open air or shared. You have to keep that close to you. That stuff that's still like fresh and raw and vulnerable, you got to keep that close. But the other stuff, particularly the stuff that's not yours, that stuff you should share because it can it, if you can help other people with it, then that makes it. That's why I think um, every fiction writer, for example, every fiction writer should have a blog where they share what they're reading. My gosh, you know, every great fiction writer I know is a great reader. And is reading all kinds of great stuff all the time. And them telling me that they're reading Moby Dick would not ruin Moby Dick for them. <laughs> like, if I go read Moby Dick, it's not going to, like, ruin it for them. Whereas, you know, if on Instagram I show you exactly how to make one of these tape collages, there will be 20 of them next week under the hashtag, you know, and I'll just – and it just won't be – I and I feel very much as someone who's been very generous – I think it's okay for me to have a boundary. Yeah. Say, I'm not ready to share this with you. Yeah. But people will push you and you have to, you just have to give your audience, you know, your audience will tell you what they, there was a great thing I heard one time. I think it was a business person. Feedback is great for what you got wrong, but it is terrible for telling you what you should do next. And I thought, let's say that again. It was a business guy. I forget his name. But he was like, feedback is great for telling you what you've done, 
or telling you what you've done wrong or what you've done right. It is terrible at telling you what you should do next because people do not know what they need until it's in front of them. <laughs> you know, there is an element of that, and every creative person needs to know that, to remember that. You can make, and because part of it is, you can make exactly what you think your audience wants, and then they don't want it. You, you know, that that is absolutely a possibility. Like, you can make something that you're like, my audience is ready for this. Mm, like, here you go. Like, when I wrote Keep Going, I was like, ha, this is my Oprah book. This is a perfection of the form. This is amazing. Like, I'll, you know, this, is, this would be, and it did fine. But it's the third in the trilogy, and nobody likes it as much as the other two books. You know what I mean? So it's like, so you just, you have to, just have to like have that courage to operate the way that you know will serve you can serve the audience but you're really serving the work you know you're you're serving the work like the work has to be good and you're its servant you're not the audience's servant you're the servant of the work or the, the thing that's like coming through and then you serve it to the audience you, everything's this, every job is a service job in a sense. When you know something is going to hurt you, if you do it, you, you just have to you have to not do it. You just have to know yourself. I think you know it's just it's just like part of the game. I know, like I know for myself, I am a I am a contrarian person. If people keep pushing me for something, I won't do it because I don't. You know, I don't like I don't like being told what to do. You know? <laughs> so like people, I don't know who taught people to be persistent on email, but you know, like oh, you don't get. But I have people that ask me the same thing over and over. Did you get the last? Did you get the? And every time they email, it's like I'm gonna do it less now, because I'm just that kind of I like I'm just contrarian like that. But I know that about myself, and it's really really powerful to know that. Because if you know that about yourself, then you can operate in certain ways. Well, I don't want to do what anyone else wants me to do. Yeah, that's and that's isn't that why we became artists? Like we become artists so we can do what other people tell us to do. You know. I so. was gonna say, well, you've done you've done uh, <laughs> an admirable job of building a, a little kind of creative universe, like a little business for yourself. Oh, I'm the luckiest guy. I I I this was none of this was planned, and it's a complete gift and a blessing. And I'm just trying not to waste it. Really, like I, I, I feel very much that my success has been mostly one of luck and chance. And the question when you get lucky is what do you do with your luck? And so I'm trying to be expansive with my luck rather than – but I'm also like there are things – as a, we just don't allow artists – there's not much time in the capitalist – milieu or you know i mean there's there's just not much time in this world to work on yourself you know and there's not a lot of time to grow and give yourself the time and space to grow and so part of the reason i love being an online person is that it gives me the time and space to grow in the way i need to for the next thing you know i mean there's a five-year gap between show your work and keep going hmm. uh, i just i needed that space sure there's uh, incubation periods for a work of art, and I feel yeah. like certain artists have 
longer cycles than others or shorter cycles than others. I always point to Donna Tartt. You know, she comes out with a book oh, every yeah. 10 years, you know, but yeah. they're all good. <laughs> but they're always good, right? <laughs> yeah, That's right. the thing. No one who takes 10 years, I mean, they're always like, yeah. And the thing I will say too, I was thinking, you've given me a lot of ideas in this conversation, so thank you. But one of, one of the things I was thinking about writing about is all the books I haven't written. <laughs> Because I'm a great at like not writing books. Like yeah, you and me both. <laughs> I'm really good at not writing books. I'm really good at like having an idea for a book and then abandoning it. But I will say there was one book I was trying to write a book about art with kids for years, and the pandemic. I was ready. I had a book proposal. We could have sold it, and then the pandemic hit, and I just said I can't do this now. I can't write this book about art and kids while I'm home with my kids. And then as time went on, I realized, oh, this is like the thing I care about most in the world. And it's the thing that I feel the least authoritative, like the least amount of authority to speak about. And then I, so like over the past year, I've just let go of that book. And then these three books came in, like these three, like I've made space. I was just like, I'm not doing that book but knowing that I might do it later. And then these three books just appeared in sequence to me. And I'm like, oh, that's it. If you let go of things, new things come. So you clear the deck. So to bring our conversation back around, every time I take a bike ride, it's not so much about filling up, it's about clearing out. You know, that there's not enough, we don't talk about this enough in creative work. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave, we can end on the last chapter of Steal Like an Artist, which is creativity is subtraction. So that when you take things away, you create a space in which other things can like come into, right? So like a lot of creative work is clearing the space, clearing the landing strip for a plane to land, you know, for something to come in, you know, like clearing the decks, like that is really, really important. And so I would encourage people like, who are struggling with their creative work, you know, don't think about what you can add. Think about what you can take away to make space for this thing that you want to appear. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> we will part company. It has been uh, delightful to talk with you. Congratulations on the 10th anniversary of Steal Like an Artist and all the success that the trilogy has had. And we will uh, eagerly await this uh, next trilogy whenever you decide to Me too. share it with us. <laughs> I'm working. Always working. Well, thank you so much, Austin. <laughs> thank you, Brad. This is great. I, I really appreciate your time. and It's fun to talk to you again. All right, everybody. There we go. That is Austin Cleon. His books on creativity in the digital age include Steal Like an Artist, now in its 10th year of existence, along with Show Your Work and Keep Going. You can find Austin online at austincleon.com. He does an excellent email newsletter. I recommend it over on Substack, as you heard us talk about. If you are out there and you're stuck or you need a shot in the arm or you just want to understand creativity better, Austin Cleon is an excellent resource. Go get his books immediately. Steal like an artist, show your work, keep going newspaper blackout, whatever your uh, druthers, all right? The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than, what is it, almost 800 episodes and counting, all available to you, the listener, for free. 
This is a listener-supported show, so if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, if you would like to show your support, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. You can support this program for as little as $1 a month. It's very easy. It's user-friendly as you move up the scale. You can get stuff, another people t-shirt or a tote bag, a book club subscription, a coffee mug, all this different stuff. I will even sing you happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The Other People Podcast also has its own email newsletter. You can sign up for that at otherppl.com or at my official website, bradlisty.com. If you would like to get a copy of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, you can do that wherever books are sold, trade paperback, ebook, or an audiobook edition that is narrated by yours truly. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? The app is free. Go get the Other People with Brad Listy app wherever you get your apps. We also, at this podcast, have a YouTube channel, the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name over at YouTube. The entire archive is sitting there on YouTube. Other PPL with Brad Listy. And when you get to the channel, subscribe. It's free. Just push the subscribe button. It helps. Another thing that helps is if you would kindly rate and review this show wherever you listen, be it Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever it is. Give the show a rating, review it. It helps other listeners find the show via the magic of the algorithm. All right? Okay. A lot of good episodes in the pipeline. Stay tuned. I will be back soon next week with another conversation with another person who tries to put the words in the right order. Mm-hmm.